well, I guess you reckon yourself some kind of Moses of the mountains. Yeah, it's one that I go back to time and time again. I wondered how in the world anyone could disagree. It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, and it's always a pleasure for me to be with you. A pleasure every time you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And today, we're thinking about journeys, you know, from the Odyssey to Finding Nemo. Some of the stories that we most love are stories about journeys, journeys that take us to new places, either physically or emotionally or spiritually. They're great for finding new friends and new enemies, journeys are. They take us all around the world, yet somehow we always end up back home again. And today's episode is indeed a wild adventure full of everything from biblical stories humorously brought into the present to language barriers providing comical mix-ups. There'll be races and songs and stories from far, far away. So buckle up and embark with us on a journey that begins with this story from Adam Booth. This is a story that's kind of a modern day version of a story you'll recognize as the story of Moses. In fact, the story is called Moses of the Mountain. Adam Booth here on the Appleseed. Well, around these parts, I've come to be known as Moses of the Mountains. He was about Ten years or so ago, when some of my buddies from college and I decided to take the great American road trip, load up an old van and drive around the country for as long as we could possibly stand it, see this great land that most of us had never seen since most of us had only ever been in West Virginia. And we did just that. We loaded up an old van and set out west, promising ourselves to stop and look at any of the small, unusual, or odd roadside attractions along the way. A few days into the trip, we had made it to the Great Rocky Mountains, and right after we had gotten there, we were heading down one of the highways and saw a sign that said, This way to Buffalo Bill's grave. So I turned the van up the hill, up the mountain, and we went up and up and up, further and further up the mountain, on our way to see Buffalo Bill's grave, but along the way, got a flat tire. So I pulled our van off to the side of the road and went around to the back to get the necessary tools to fix the flat. And as I was digging around the back of the van, I heard a voice come from behind me. Son, you'd be wiser to keep on moving. I turned around and there behind me was the biggest, burliest mountain man I had ever seen which is saying a lot coming from West Virginia. And there on his left and his right were equally big and burly mountain people. The voice came out again. Son, I said you'd be wiser to keep on moving. I I, I took a step backwards. The whole row of mountain people took a step forward. At this moment, all my buddies had taken off running as fast as they could, but I I, I just couldn't. I took another step back, and those mountain folk took another step forward. I took one more step back and rammed right into the back of the van and fell to the ground. The voice came out again. Son, does that license plate say West Virginia? I, I said, yes, sir, it does. He said, West by God, Virginia? I said, yeah, that's the one. You know it? 
He said, know it, we are it. Everyone gather around and all those mountain people gathered around me. He said, listen, folks, this feller here's Ken. I said, what are you talking about? He said, son, you are looking at the 12 lost tribes of West Virginia. Over here on my left, I've got six tribes whose people come from the counties of Wayne, Wyoming, Lincoln, Logan, Mingo, and McDowell. They're known as the Bitumenite tribes. And over here on my right, I've got six tribes whose families are from the counties of Cabell, Putnam, Kanawha, Wood, Monongalia, Jefferson. They're known as the Industrialite tribes. I said, well, this is Great, but but what are you talking about? He kind of chuckled a bit and said, Well, see, back in the days of our ancestors, our great-great-great-grandparents, the state capital of West Virginia changed hands quite a few times, and when our relatives went out to pay taxes, they were never quite sure where they were supposed to go to get to the capital, and a number of them got lost on the way. And we've been stranded out here in these mountains ever since trying to find our way home. But seeing that you're from West Virginia, you think that you could take us home? I said, well, I do know how to get back to the homeland, but you're not all going to fit in my van. We're going to have to go by foot. The leader of this group looked to his left, and they nodded at him. He looked to his right, they nodded, and he looked at me, stuck out his hand, and said, you got yourself a deal. The next morning, we woke up, gathered all the necessary belongings that they had, and set on out of those mountains by foot. I was leading those twelve tribes, and we went day after day out of those mountains until we just got to a nice, vast wilderness. There wasn't anything. This was the beginning of the Great Plains. And about this time, we noticed that we were running out of our necessary food supply. Now, It was fortunate for us that we happened upon a great farm that was owned and run by a farmer named John Farrell. And farmer John Farrell was kind enough to let us squat on the outsides of his property and work in his fields in exchange for some of the returns that came in from all of his crops. Seemed like a good deal, so we stayed there, and we worked day in and day out. But by the end of the first week... We realized that we were getting the low end of the bargain. He wasn't giving us anything. So I knew I had to do something about it. The end of that first week, I woke up early, right as the sun was coming up. As I was standing up, oh, my back hurt from all that work I'd been doing in the field. So I picked up a stick and I used it as I walked out of our camp, headed across those fields and went to the edge of the land where Farmer Farrell's farmhouse was. Every morning he would come out of those big doors on the front and look across at his fields. And I got there just as those doors were opening. As he stepped out, I took that walking stick, I thrust it into the ground, I straightened up my back, and I called out to him, Farrell, Farrell, let my people go! He looked at me, spat in the ground, and said, Get back to work, you hillbilly. Now, if there's one thing I can't stand, it's being called a hillbilly by someone who ain't from the West Virginia mountains. So I went back to where the 12 tribes were. I gathered them all around. I said, listen, folks, have you been keeping up with the ways of West Virginia ever since you've been lost? They said, sure have. I said, do you have a supply of ramps anywhere? They said, sure do. I said, great. Eat up all those ramps. 
fix them with potatoes, a little bit of ham, or just eat them raw. But whatever you do, eat as many of them as you can, and eat them as fast as you can. And the twelve tribes set to eating those ramps, and before long their skin began to stink so bad. And not long after that, a great cloud of that stink, that stench, it just rose right up into the air, and that cloud blew forth over Farmer Farrell's land. And as that great stinky cloud went forth, it was so pungent that it killed the first grown crop of his season. And it also took out the firstborn of all of his livestock. And when Pharaoh came out and saw the plague that had come across his land, he came to us and said, go, go, get away from my land, but take whatever it is you need. Whatever you do, get away from here as soon as you can. And so we took what food we needed to get us around the rest of our trip and set on the rest of our journey. As the days passed, we would occasionally stop in little towns across the Great Plains. We began to notice that before long we'd stop in a town and it was almost as if the townspeople knew who we were, kind of expected us coming. Then one day we stopped at a town and one of the people there was particularly helpful and said, you all best watch out. See, apparently, Farmer Farrell had reported our activities to the authorities and those authorities were on the hunt for us. As we continued our journey, we were coming within sight of the great Mississippi River one day, when one of the members of the Twelve Tribes turned around and saw there behind us stretching across the horizon from one side to the other an entire fleet of police cars. They were coming after us at top speed, kicking up a great cloud of dust. So we took off running in the other direction, but there was the Mississippi River. And there was no bridge across. What were we going to do? I thought fast and then came up with an idea. I called out, quick, take up hands eight. The twelve tribes formed great square dancing squares. Some of the members pulled out fiddles and banjos and began playing old time music. And I began to call, well, grab your partner, swing around, hold her tight and don't slow down. And the twelve tribes began a great square dance. They danced around and around as that music played. And as they spun around and around, I began to call faster and faster. As they were dancing around and around, out of the center of those squares came great funnel clouds. They were twisting around, and they went over to the Mississippi River and part of the Mississippi right in half. I called, stop dancing, now's your chance. And we took off running across where the Mississippi had been parted. Right when we got to the other side, the funnel clouds dissipated. The water collapsed down below us, and the police were left on the other side. The adrenaline was so great that we kept running and running day after day until we reached the banks of the big sandy river at the far end of eastern Kentucky. The homeland was on the other side. And not just that, there was a great crowd of people on the other side. We crossed the bridge into Wayne County, and when we did, a sheriff stepped forward out of this great crowd of people, said, I need to speak to the person in charge of this group. I stepped forward, and he said, Would you care to explain the activities of this group of people? So I did. I told him how I had found the twelve lost tribes of West Virginia, how I led them out of the wilderness, how we were captives in Pharaoh's land and the plague that came across his land, and then how we parted the Mississippi in half, and how I had finally brought my people home. He looked me in the eye and said, Is that so? Well, I guess you reckon yourself some kind of Moses of the mountains. I looked back at him and said, Well, I don't know so much about that, but I do know that I've brought my people home. 
well, our story was on the television news, it was in the newspaper, and before long, people came to know about me. So now whenever people ask, why are you called Moses of the Mountains? Uh, I just sit back and tell them the tale. Moses of the Mountains, a story told for you by Adam Booth here on The Appleseed. And thinking about an hour's worth of story journeys made me think of a memory of my own. Join me on a road trip in an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On The Appleseed. I like long drives, and I live in a good state for long drives. I mean, Interstate 15, the main highway through the state where I grew up, I can kind of take or leave. But if I've got time to head east as far as Highway 89 and then north or south, that's a show I'd pay money for. It'll take me through the mighty reds and browns, the curves and angles of Utah's color country through the towns that remain attentive to the pre-Interstate 15 Utah aesthetic, through the greening that begins along the rivers and then, as you go further north, spreads through the whole rest of the world. Amber waves of grain, spacious skies, purple mountain majesties, it's all there. And further north, you'll even pass alabaster cities. And, of course, on my left hand and my right are the tracks of pilgrim feet that saw beyond the years. I like long drives through all of that. Paths sometimes cross in interesting ways on long drives. Windows open. I like long drives for that reason, too. I remember a particular drive some years ago, about 400 miles long from where I lived to Utah State University in Logan, Utah, to play some music for the good students of Utah State University. Now, some of the guys in the band stayed up there in hotel rooms that night, but a couple of us had to get back for work in the morning. So we made the drive 400 miles back from Logan between about 10 in the evening and 4 in the morning. And At that hour, there's no reason to find beautiful scenery to drive through. You just pick the shortest distance between point A and point B and hope the company's good. Well, my company that night was my friend Dennis Zwang, the horn player who only hours before had blown the roof off at Kent Hall before hundreds of USU students and their friends. The drive from Logan to St. George being as long as it is, did I mention it's 400 miles? Our conversation was long and leisurely and rich, like a good meal with a good friend. Dennis came to the United States with his family when he was a kid. And his family found its way to the avenues, the neighborhoods in Salt Lake City. When he grew up, he played music at D.B. Cooper's, the club where I'd cut my teeth as a singer a couple of decades later. He rehearsed bands at the Al Waite Studios in the same room that I'd rehearse in myself a couple of decades later. He played with Salt Lake sax player Jerry Floor, in whose home studio I'd cut a demo recording of couple of decades later. And there's more. Dennis, I found out, is a hiker, and he knows the names and locations of all the places above my hometown where I used to hike when I was a kid. He knows the meadows 
named for Old Testament battlefields. <laughs> he knows the way to exit East Hamangog and the best way to hook up with the long, winding chute that exits onto the granite fields below Grassy Flat. He knows the view from just below Lone Peak down onto Bell's Canyon. He even knows my old piano teacher, Jay Beck, who used to hike the steep five miles up to Lake Hardy, carrying a big hard-frame backpack full of scuba gear and scuba dive in that lake. I mean, forgive me the digression to all those obscure Utah hiking locations, but those images were keys to the locks behind which I store some of my richest childhood memories. Passwords that open doors to places in my memory where I usually go alone. And now here was a friend that knew how to get there too, that knew those places and those people. It's tough for me to communicate exactly what that meant. But I'll always remember that drive with Dennis and the way it took the lid off those old memories. I'll always be thankful for the friend who, it seemed, had walked years before me all the paths that I would walk a few years behind him. Thank heaven for the friends who understand. So I prayed in the wee hours when I got home safely at last. Well, it's a long drive through this life, and while much of the trip is surrounded by beauty, there are also long stretches of treacherous night driving to do. Driving during which you just have to pick the shortest distance from point A to point B and hope the company's good. When you have to do that, there's no better way to make the miles go by than to take along a friend full of stories. Especially if it's a friend who's interested in your stories, too. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal and for Moses of the Mountains from Adam Booth at the top of the hour. Coming up, a lot more. John McCutcheon and Heather Forrest and Betty Ann Wiley, Ruth Halpern. They're all coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, an entry in the Radio Family Journal and a story called Moses of the Mountains from Adam Booth. Up next, we've got a story from the musical storyteller Heather Forrest. It's called Paca and Beetle. And it's a story about who can move the fastest, a paca, which is a brown and white rodent that lives in Central and South America, or a beetle. The answer to the question is in the story. Here's Heather Forrest on The Appleseed. One morning along the Amazon River in Brazil A little brown beetle was walking along in the mud As he went along he sang a song I'm going on a long journey, a long, 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 long journey I'm going on a long journey just then, Paka, a small rat-like creature, ran by. The swift-footed Paka dashed circles around the beetle and laughed. <laughs> You're going on a long journey. <laughs> you crawl so slowly, it will take you your whole life. 
to reach your destination. If you could move as fast as I do, you would be more likely to accomplish something. Look how fast I can run. I'm so fast, you're so slow. Watch me go to and fro. I'm so fast, you're so slow. I'm so fast, you're so slow. Paka demonstrated his speed by darting about. You will never get anywhere, he mocked. You're too slow. Brown Beetle ignored Paka's insulting words and kept creeping along. I'm going on a long journey, a long, 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 long journey. I'm going on a long journey. Wise Parrot looked down at the two and said, Paka, your words are boastful, but not necessarily true. Beetle is slow, but he gets where he wants to be. Perhaps the two of you would like to have a race. Each of you go to the tree around the river bend as fast as you are able. I will give whoever arrives there first a new coat as a prize. Paka said, Oh, surely my speed will win, and I will choose a fine yellow coat with black spots like the jaguar. <laughs> that would be a fitting replacement for my plain brown and white fur. Beetle replied, I agree to the race, and if I win, I want a coat like yours, my wise parrot friend. I want to be the green of your wings and the gold of your head feathers. Very well, said Parrot. Each of you go as swiftly as you can. Paka dashed off along the river bank. Oh, and I shall have a long tail, too, he shouted as he sped away. I'm so fast, he's so slow, watch me go to and fro. I'm so fast, he's so slow, watch me... Paka stopped and said to himself, Why rush? The beetle won't arrive for hours. He walked along the river bank at a comfortable pace. <laughs> I'm so fast, he's so slow. As he went along, he thought about his beautiful new fur. When at long last he arrived at the tree, a small voice said, What took you so long, my friend? Paka's eyes grew wide at the sight of the little brown beetle. How did you get here so quickly? asked the Paka. I flew, the beetle replied. You flew? I didn't know you could fly. You cheated. Parrot interrupted. Rock, beetle did not cheat. I told you both to go as swiftly as you could. Beetle won the race fairly. Just because you were unaware of beetle's hidden talent doesn't mean he shouldn't have flown to win. Beetle doesn't brag about flying. He keeps his wings modestly folded and only uses them when necessary. Oh, Paka grumbled and went away wearing his plain brown and white color. Meanwhile, the little beetle's back began to shine for all time, a bright green like the wing feathers of the parrot, tiny golden spots, the color of the parrot's head, twinkled all over his shell. 
a story called Paca and Beetle, a story told for you by the musical storyteller Heather Forrest, telling musical tales for decades and decades. It's always a pleasure to share a story from Heather Forrest. There's a lot coming up here on The Appleseed. You're going to hear stories from Betty Ann Wiley and Ruth Halpern. Later on, you're going to hear a little tale from Bill Harley, too, about a journey taken by a kid who first sets off to just simply take a walk around the block. You'll love that story, and it's later on in the hour. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a conversation with Paul Ricks about a book he'd like to introduce you to. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you in a minute. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story called Paca and Beetle, a story from Heather Forrest, the musical storyteller. That story is from a collection called World Tales of Wisdom and Wonder. And before that, you heard a story about a long drive, an entry in the Radio Family Journal about sharing a drive with my friend Dennis Zwang. And at the top of the hour, a Moses story. You probably recognize the shape of the story, even though it was a modern-day version of the story of Moses, Moses of the Mountains, it was called, shared with you by the storyteller Adam Booth. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear in just a moment a story from uh, Betty Ann Wiley, a story called Generous People, the birth of the Southern Order of Storytellers. And you're going to hear a story called A Story of Signs by Ruth Halpern. We want to remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. That's where you can find an archive of all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. Take us with you on your mobile device by Googling the Appleseed podcast and subscribing for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. You can also find us at the BYU Radio app. In fact, download the app wherever you get apps for your mobile device to find all kinds of ways to listen to all of the programs produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. And before we get to the stories by Betty Ann Wiley and Ruth Halpern, we thought we'd bring you a conversation with a friend. Stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the great things we see on screen, through the tales we tell around the kitchen table or the campfire or the living room, through great music that gets into our hearts, even through the food that we eat. And of course, one of the great ways to get great stories down inside you is through the books with which you have a relationship. And we've talked about a lot of great books on the show, and uh, sometimes that's been in conversation with Paul Ricks, and he's here with me now. Paul, it's great to have you. Great to be back. Thank you. We're always excited to see you come through the door with a handful of great books. <laughs> well, I'm always excited to bring them, so thank you. Let's talk about the one you've got in your hand. Yeah. So this is a, a picture storybook, and it's um, it's by the Brothers Grimm. It's called The Bear Skinner. Yeah. And this one is retold by Laura Amy Schlitz and illustrated by Max Grafe. Um, the reason that – well, there are lots of reasons that I love it. One is that – I think it's one that a lot of us are not familiar with. Yeah, and yeah. So, this is kind of a tricky story, too. Yeah. And, and, I mean, there are elements of stories that you are familiar with in this story, and this is, this is a great one. Well, that's, that's exactly what I've found. When I, when I share it, 
people, myself included, we think we know exactly where it's going, right? Yeah. There's a guy who's hungry. The devil shows up and says, you know, I can give you food, but you're going to have to do something <laughs> for me. And he has to make this deal. And, but, um, and he's kind of led along little by little until yeah. he, he ends up going there. But um, there are maybe three or four turns in this story that were unexpected to me as a reader. And when I share it with others, I can hear it in the room where people take this breath in and go, oh, that's not what I thought was going to happen next. And I think if a story can do that for us and to us, then it's an experience that maybe we should engage with. So that's that's something that I love about it. This is one of those great, uh, well, one of those many, many, many tales collected by the Brothers Grimm. Where where does it come from originally, Jim? Um, I would assume kind of their, their Prussian background. I yeah. don't know beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've some of the the versions that I've seen of it, um, like it's it's very similar to the last two lines. And one, yeah. uh, maybe the devil wins, and one, maybe the the main character wins. And in this particular um, in this particular version of it, I, I guess it's kind of up to the reader. Who, it hardly ever makes for a smooth sailing no. when, you, when you make a deal with the devil. Right? You know, there's just a lot on the line. <laughs> Maybe that's the lesson, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but um. this this version of this story, The Bear Skinner, mm-hmm. is uh, – it's filled with these kind of these really kind of heavy illustrations right yeah like the the idea that the artist is using this palette of dark grays and browns and dark yeah. greens um one of the words that one of my students uses she said it just feels so grimy the whole time and i was like well what do you mean she's like well so not to ruin it for anybody but like this uh, character is asked to wear a bear's skin after, you know, he kills the bear for seven yeah. years. But then it just takes over his body and it's hard to tell who's looking more like the bear, right? Yeah. The, this former animal or this man who's turning into an animal. And um, and as she was talking about, I said, can you explain grimy to me? To me? She just said, as I look at these pictures, I feel it under my fingernails. And that was as good <laughs> as a, a description as I've ever heard. So, yeah. So that's something to to think about as we're looking at the yeah the these these really moody illustrations right that that mm-hmm. that again look like they're kind of smudged onto the page in some way you know yeah. I I like your students' uh, uh, description of yeah it too. once again a student says it better than I could but, <laughs> which is probably appropriate you know frailty thy name is advanced degree but right. even so um, you talk was, you talk a little bit about uh, uh, this the, the the you gave away a, a little bit more sure, of the sure. story right this is a story in which a guy, as part of this deal, right, uh, winds up killing a bear, wearing the bear skin for mm-hmm. years and years and years. And and as you say, there's this kind of, you know, this sort of cr- creatureification of the yeah. of the character, right? And in a lot of ways, that's what that's that's what makes it. In, you, you you almost think sometimes when you when you get acquainted with this story that it's going to go in kind of a Beauty and the Beast yeah. sort of direction. Yeah, right? we're going to have a kiss. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. But is everything okay, you know? And then um, maybe different than the Disneyfied version, if we have a creaturefication, sure. where um, I, I think there's great potential for different types of lesson when, lessons when, um, when we don't know, when we're not sure if it's all going to wrap up with a bow. Like yeah. that type of tension is a lifelong tension we have with our own lived experiences, right? And yeah. so um, – yeah, it's one that I go back to time and time again, and I've just never seen somebody 
disappointed by the experience. They might be disappointed mm. by the outcome, yeah, but yeah. not by the fact that they engaged with the book itself. Yeah. So. You walk away from a story like this with a little bit to think about, with a little bit of, uh, as, as you say, you know, you talk about twists in the book, you know, yeah. little things that are waiting for you that you didn't expect. And it's perhaps a little heavier than some of the versions of fairy tales that we sometimes acquaint ourselves with. But I like what you say. You walk away from an experience like that, or you can, mm-hmm. uh, and enriched by it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm just one other little plug for it is if I'm, tr- I know I'm trying to sell it hard, but, um, <laughs> yeah, just, I remember that as I was sharing it with some of my students on the second or third page, they started to say, Hey, this sounds like this old Testament story hmm. on the fourth or fifth page. It sounds like a different old Testament story. And then, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, we're not sure who, like, Who's the person? Who's the devil? And who is the savior? Hmm. Which is is pretty pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah, and and of course this this notion that uh, that some of our storytelling impulses, some of the things that we're concerned about learning about and getting straight through the stories that we tell, are the same for folks that were writing the story that were creating the stories that the Brothers Grimm collected, as yeah. well as as Old Testament folks. Yeah, yeah it just gets something very deep and visceral, something within us. Yeah. You know, like that makes us human, yeah. but is also um, like that balance that we're we're dancing between godliness and something very darker than that. So. Yeah. Well, if it sounds like your style, it's the Bear Skinner, a really quite lovely picture book. Remind us who the illustrator is. Yeah. Uh, illustrator is Max Grafe and the retailer is Laura Amy Schlitz. Yeah. Well, Paul Ricks, always a pleasure to have you with us, introducing us to great things. Thank you much. Thank you. Stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the things that we see on screen or that we read between the pages of books or the songs that we hear. All of these things spark memories and thoughts for us. And, of course, the tales that get passed down from telling to telling are ways in which stories get down into our hearts. A pleasure to have Paul Ricks with us. Coming up now, we've got a story from Betty Ann Wiley. Now, Betty Ann Wiley is sharing a story here called Generous People, Birth of the Southern Order of Storytellers. Now, Betty Ann Wiley uh, tells this story all about artists supporting artists by providing connections and opportunities to work on stories with other storytellers before they're ready for audiences, generally preserving the beautiful art of storytelling. It's a tale that will give you a glimpse into the community of storytellers, some of whose work we bring you here on the show. Here's Betty Ann Wiley on The Appleseed. Generous people. When I was growing up, telling stories was as natural as breathing. You didn't much think about it. You surely didn't talk about it. You just did it. So naturally, I was surprised to see a storytelling class listed in an art center brochure for the fall of 1981 in Atlanta. I wondered how in the world anybody could teach storytelling. So you know what I did? I enrolled in the class. It was going to meet one night a week for three weeks, beginning the second week in October. The teacher's name was Laurie Cooley. Now, in the brochure, she was described as a professional storyteller. I got to wondering how in the world anybody could be a professional storyteller. I didn't even know what that meant. 
Well, on the first night of class, Laura Lee gathered us in a circle in our classroom, which was in the grand entrance hall of that Tudor mansion that is Callenwald Art Center. She explained that she had timed the class to start as soon as she returned from her annual visit to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. She said thousands of listeners gathered from all over the country to sit in circus-style tents scattered throughout that tiny little town to listen to stories. I wondered how in the world a tiny little town could attract thousands of people from all over the country for anything. Back at Callenwald, Halloween was right around the corner. So you know what Laura Lee did? She dimmed the lights, and she introduced us to a blacksmith named Wicked John. She said Wicked John was as mean as the devil himself, which didn't sit very well with the devil. Laura Lee said when John died, St. Peter wouldn't let him in heaven. And the devil wasn't about to let him in hell. Larley said we'd better be on the lookout because Wicked John is still roaming the face of Georgia. He's carrying a burning coal in a hollow pumpkin, and he's looking for a place to start a hell of his own. I wondered how anybody who heard that story could ever look at a jack-o'-lantern in the same way again. Now, the second week... Laura Lee introduced us to a fellow storyteller, George Goldman. George was sitting in a chair in the storytelling circle, and he was holding his crumpled jacket in his lap. When Laura Lee asked George if he'd brought a story, he said no, he hadn't brought a story, but he had brought his dog, which he claimed was wrapped up in his jacket. George said he couldn't leave the little dog at home alone because it was recovering from a freak accident in Jonesboro. He said that poor little dog had run into a sickle hidden in a patch of weeds and had been split in two right down the middle. George said he had snatched up the two halves of that little dog, slapped him back together, and wrapped him in his jacket. Now he was just waiting for that little dog to heal. When we reconvened the next week, George was busting with the good news. He said when he finally took the dog out of that jacket, he was shocked to see that he had slapped the two halves together upside down and backwards with two legs sticking up and two legs sticking down. Now, he says, that dog runs on one set of legs till it gets tired, then it flips over and runs on the other two. And to top it all off, George said that little dog could bark out of both ends. When George finally settled down, Larley introduced us to another storytelling friend of hers, Chuck Larkin. Chuck sat there in his red suspenders and his handlebar mustache, and he assured us that, unlike George, he would rather eat fried chicken than tell us a lie. So naturally, we hung on every word of his amazing experience with a vanishing hitchhiker he had picked up just a few blocks from Callenwald. The third session was coming to an end. That's all Arlie had scheduled, and that's all we had paid for. But Fiona Page, a determined middle school teacher, was not about to let that stop her. She said, Larley... This class can't end. We're not through. I said, Amen to that. Laura Lee said, Well, 
Come on back next week and I'll give you one free class. We did, and she did. And at the end of that class, we said, Larley, we're not through. So Larley said, come on back next week for one more free class. At the end of that class, we said, Larley, we're not through. So she took us back for one last class. At the end of that class, when we said, Laurelie, we're not through, Laurelie was ready. She said, I've had an idea. Let's stick together and form an organization to support each other in storytelling. So that's how the Southern Order of Storytellers was born. But if you know Laura Lee, you know she didn't stop there. She also started a brand new festival, Old Christmas. She started that Old Christmas Storytelling Festival so even more people could have the opportunity to hear and tell stories. One of our first featured guest tellers at our new festival was Michael Parent. Michael told wonderful stories, and he shared many observations about the art of storytelling. In particular, Michael said, Storytellers are generous people. They give stories life, and they keep them alive by passing them on. Sitting in his audience, that cold January day, Basking in the warmth of a room filled to overflowing with storytellers, story listeners, and shared stories, I wondered how in the world anyone could disagree. No one did. Betty Ann Wiley with a story called Generous People, Birth of the Southern Order of Storytellers. Now, one of the greatest pleasures of long journeys is the people that you meet along the way. And now in this story, two groups of people cross paths, but the problem is that neither of them speak a common language. This leads to a conversation of signs and body language that ends in a funny and surprising conclusion. This is a story of signs told for you by Ruth Halpern here on The Appleseed. going to set out into the world to seek your fortune, what's one thing you'd want to make sure to bring with you? My dog. What else? Cookies. Um, a lucky ring. There's things I need. Some stuff you might need. you got to bring it. A whole house. A whole house you bring with you to seek your fortune? It better have wheels. Mm. Now, what would you be looking for when you go seeking your fortune? Food. Mmm, food can be good fortune. Something you had in your dream. Something you dreamed of. Mmm. Anything. Anything. Anything could turn out to be your fortune. You could be looking for something that you won't know until you see it. Well, let me ask you this question. How will you know when you found your fortune? Because I would remember it in, my, in one of my dreams. Mmm. That's how you know you found your fortune. Well, in these stories, girls go out to seek their fortune, and women go out to seek their fortunes, and they find things they never dreamed of but always wanted.
Now let me start with a story that comes from long ago in the Middle East, when religions and spiritual secrets were being revealed all around the desert, and every rock and cave and spring turned out to be sacred. People went on long pilgrimages trying to reach some holy site where they might find a miracle or a blessing. And it became quite dangerous to go on these journeys, because as the people traveling across the desert equipped themselves with all kinds of gold and food and water, a certain number of bandits and thieves decided they'd like to have that for themselves. If someone said to themselves, well, I'm going to go out on a journey, they also had to think to themselves, is it safe? Now, there was one particular group of pilgrims who went to their leader. They said, is this really what the gods and goddesses want from us? That we should risk our money and our lives just to cross the desert to a holy shrine? And their leader thought about this, prayed and considered, finally said, what the gods and goddesses want us to do is keep our eyes open and our wits about us. And if we can do that, we'll travel in safety sounded like good advice, and so they loaded up their camels and their horses and their water and their supplies, and off they went across the desert. Now, on the first day, they had scouts all around watching the horizon, and they saw sand, nothing but sand. On the second day, as they traveled, more sand. No one else crossed their path. But on the third day, way off on the horizon, they saw something. They saw a cloud of dust, like the cloud of dust kicked up by galloping horses. They couldn't tell if these were friends or enemies, so they decided to play it safe. They took shelter on the backside of a sand dune to wait and find out who they were. Now, around the time that the pilgrims had galloped into the shelter of the sand dune, that other cloud of galloping dust had arrived on the other side. The pilgrim leader decided to go to the top of the hill and find out who they were. So she swept her cloak over her shoulder and set out up the sand dune. When she reached the top, the people down below could see a man appear from the other side. He had a long white beard swept over one shoulder and enormous bristling eyebrows. And the people watching below could quickly tell that these two did not speak the same language. And as they watched, an entire conversation took place in signs. First of all, the man from the other side of the hill, he held up three fingers. While the pilgrim leader looked at him, and she held up one. The man from the other side of the hill held up two fingers. The pilgrim leader held up her fist. There's a little pause in the conversation, and then the man reached into his cloak, and he pulled out an onion and stuck it under the nose of the pilgrim leader. Well, she looked at it, took it, and then she... <laughs> took an enormous bite out of it. Well, then she reached into her cloak, and she pulled out an egg, and she offered it to the man. He looked it over, frowned, turned on his heel, and disappeared back down the sand dune. And that was the end of the conversation. Well, the pilgrim leader came back down the hill. She gathered her people around her. She said, My friends... I have just met the wisest, the holiest, the most incredible man I've ever met in my life. He has shown me, surely, that our journey is blessed and we will travel in safety. And then she closed her eyes. And the people looked at her and finally they said, What do you mean? How can you tell? What did he say? 
Ah, she said, let me explain. First of all, he held up three fingers, symbolizing the three aspects of the goddess, maiden, mother, and crone. Well, I held up one finger to show that all of those are one in the life force that moves us all. Well, then he held up two fingers to show that we humans are forever separate from the gods. And then I held up a fist to show that all of us, brothers and sisters together, are like the fingers of one hand, united when we're together. Well, then he got philosophical. He offered me an onion, symbolizing the many layers of experience in life. And I, to show that I embraced that experience, took a bite of it. Well, then, I wanted to give him a gift. I wanted to give him something rare, something fragile, something you'd never find in the desert. So I offered him an egg. And he was so absolutely humble, he wouldn't even accept it. This is how I know that this wise man has shown us we will travel in safety. And so they got on their horses and their camels and they rode off across the desert. And they did travel in safety. They traveled all the way to their destination without seeing any thieves or bandits. Because all the thieves and bandits from the other side of the hill, they were long gone. You knew they were thieves and bandits over there, right? Oh, yeah. Well, here's what happened. When the man with the long beard and the bristling eyebrows came down that sand dune, he gathered his men together. He said, get on your horses and ride. Get out of here now while you can. Those people on the other side of the hill are the most brutal, cutthroat, ruthless killers I've ever met in my life. Go now while you can. His men looked at him. What, what do you mean? What did she say? How could you tell? And their leader said, listen. I offered her three chances to get her and her men out of here. And you know what she said? She said she'd fight me one-on-one. -on -one. I held up two fingers to say, I'll poke out both your eyes. She said, try it, try it, and waved her fist under my nose. Huh. Well, I offered her an onion, symbolizing the bitter taste of defeat. And she took a bite of it. And then she added insult to injury. She offered me an egg, symbol of how easily she could crush me. I tell you now, get on your horses and ride! Go! And they did. And that's why not just those pilgrims, but all those who came after them, traveled that desert in safety. A story from Ruth Halpern here on The Appleseed, a story of signs. And we thought we'd wrap up with this terrific piece from the great storyteller and musician and songwriter and performer Bill Harley. This is a story of a kid who winds up on quite a journey after just setting out at first to take a walk around the block. Here's Bill Harley on The Appleseed. My dad said take a walk around the block Put on your shoes and socks and take a walk around the block You're driving me crazy, it's got to stop Get outside and take a walk around the block So I walked out the door, I walked down the street I said how to do to everybody I meet And I got home about half past noon My dad said you're back too soon Hey dad, how did you get back so fast? I ran Alright, well listen 
I said it was a walk around the block, so next time, would you walk? Okay, sorry, Dad. My dad said take a walk around the town Quit hanging around and take a walk around the town You're driving me crazy with your running around Get outside and take a walk around the town So I walk by the stores, walk by the school By the post office and the swimming pool I got home about half past one My dad said you can't be done I am I can't believe you're back so soon Neither can I Hey wait a minute did you run? Yeah, just once. When was that? Um, when did I run once? Yeah. The whole time. <laughs> My dad said take a walk around the land. Get out while you can and take a walk around the land. You're driving me crazy and I can't stand it. Get outside and take a walk around the land. So I walk to the mountains, I walk to the shore. I walk through the desert, then I walk a little more. I got home about half past two. My dad said, you can't be through. I am. I can't believe you did that. I did. You didn't. I did. You didn't. I did. You didn't. I did. Okay, you did. I didn't. Stop it. Stop it. That's enough. That's enough. Come on. Come on. My dad said, take a walk around the earth. Things are getting worse. Take a walk around the earth. You're driving me crazy. My head hurts. Get outside and take a walk around the earth. So I walked through Europe and Asia too. From Tucumcari to Timbuktu. I got home about half past three. My dad said, now that can't be. You did not walk all the way around the earth. I did too. You did not. I did, Dad. The pyramids were great. Okay, that's fine. And so were the penguins. Yeah, that's enough. And the elephants. Okay. And the piranha. That's fine. And the anacondas. Right. And Victoria Falls. That's enough. Okay, sorry, Dad. One more thing. What? Mount Everest. <laughs> My dad said, take a walk around the moon. You're crazy as a loon. Take a walk around the moon. You're driving me crazy. Don't come back soon. Why don't you take a walk around the moon? So I walk by the clouds, walk by the skies, sat on the moon and watched the earth rise. I got home about a half past four. My dad said, what are you here for? I'm back. That's impossible. That I'm back? Know that you went to the moon. That's impossible. Other people have been to the moon, Dad. Yeah, but not kids wearing sneakers and jeans and t-shirts. That's impossible. No, it's not, because I did it. And if you do it, it means it's not impossible, because doing something impossible means doing something that can't be done. So if you can't do it, it's impossible, or it might be possible, but it hasn't happened yet. But if you do do it, it means it's possible since you did it, and that's what it means to be possible, which is the opposite of impossible. And if it's the opposite, it means you can do it, and I did it, so... It's not impossible. <laughs> hey, Dad? What? Can I have a cookie? <laughs> my dad said, take a walk through space. Get out of my face and take a walk through space. You're driving me crazy just running around the place. Get outside and take a walk through space. So I walked by Mercury, walked by Mars, walked by some comets, I walked by some stars. I got home about Half past ten, my dad said, I was worried about you. Where have you been? Dad, I was in outer space. You sent me there, remember? Yeah, but why did it take you so long? Dad, be realistic. It's outer space. You can't 
just send a kid to outer space and say, come back in an hour. That's impossible. Yeah, okay. Hey, Dad. What? Can I have a cookie? Nah. It's bedtime. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, Dad, it's not. What do you mean it's not? It's not, Dad. Why not? Because I haven't had a cookie. See, I get the cookie and then it's bedtime. Can I have a cookie? Take the cookie. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome. <laughs> a terrific ending to a terrific hour and hour of stories about taking journeys. Stories from Ruth Halpern and Betty Ann Wiley. Stories from Adam Booth and from Heather Forrest. Great to have a visit with Paul Ricks about the book Bear Skinner and uh, an entry in the Radio Family Journal, too. And, of course, all wrapped up by that terrific piece from Bill Harley. Pleasure to have had you with us. This hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance, our audio engineer, Stuart Foster, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.